You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Question 88. Uh, we've talked about how no man can obey the law. We've gone through the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> and it asked, what is the way that we escape? And you remember those three things, faith, repentance, and the outward means. So now it goes to question 88. What are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. It's a tremendous question and answer. It follows up our discussion on faith, saving faith, and repentance unto life. Christ as our King bestows upon his redeemed people all the benefits of his redemption. So this is a work of his regal office. Of course, it's the Holy Spirit of Christ who does it as the agent, but it is Christ as our king. And by redemption, what we mean is reclaiming sinners from sin, death, hell, and granting them eternal life, which is a glorious thought. There are various benefits that the Catechism talks about that are associated with the process experienced, and it's at each stage along the way. For example, we enjoy justification, adoption, sanctification, and it mentions various benefits that either accompany or flow from these benefits. And those benefits are things like assurance of God's love. Peace of conscience, simply meaning that your conscience is clean. You're forgiven. You can stand before God. Joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of grace, this promise of progressive sanctification and advancing and enlarging our hearts, perseverance to the end, and additional benefits received at death, being forever freed from sin and misery, made perfectly holy and happy in soul and body. And then, of course, the last installment of our redemption would be the final and glorious resurrection of the body. That's redemption. Paul says, We ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So they're not just mere husks to be cast away, but they are important parts of who we are. And Christ came to redeem us soul and body, and those bodies belong to him and stay united to him even in death. Any questions on the introductory stuff? Okay. So these benefits that we talked about, <clears throat> especially justification, adoption, sanctification, are applied by outward means that have been appointed by Christ. And what we understand is that these are instruments through which he is pleased to convey grace. Now, there's nothing valuable in and of themselves, but they're valuable because he as God has, ple has been pleased to appoint these as a way to enrich, to save, to sanctify his people. They're powerless, 
but his spirit makes use of them. So, for example, when we take the supper, there's something that goes on there that's beyond human sight. And that's because the Holy Spirit is present. And he uses this as a means of grace. When we talk about that phrase, means of grace, this is what we mean. He conveys grace. Saving grace, sanctifying grace, redeeming grace. And they're the means by which Christians grow in faith and assurance. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. Now, among many people, many people in general, the use of outward means is either despised or neglected. And this, of course, is spiritually dangerous. It's characteristic of what we call mysticism. And you've heard that term before. Mysticism is something which makes feelings the source of religious knowledge. It's not an intellectual, but it's an emotional spirituality in which the mystic will look inside for truth. That's the general sense of what mysticism is. His feelings, he believes, are the effects in his soul that are wrought by the God whom he acknowledges. So what's going on inside informs him of who God is and what his God requires. The Christian mystic interprets feelings as leadings of the Spirit or manifestations of Christ. So you see, it's the same, it's the same idea. He's looking inside for leading, for direction, for encouragement in his faith. If I feel good, I'm a good Christian. If I feel bad, Something's wrong with my Christianity. And so obviously it's a subjective focus, and the outward means in that scenario have little to no use or value. We believe, according to what our catechism is teaching us, that the working of God's grace is intimately associated with his inspired written word. This objective, published document that is inspired by the Spirit of God. He is sovereign in the work of grace, but he is not a disorder, it's not in a disorderly or arbitrary manner. Isn't that wonderful? It's not as if you can't figure things. He has said what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. Here's my word. Here's my sacraments. Here's the, the privilege of prayer. And if you devote yourself to these things, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bless you. And we'll see that as we go along. Ordinarily, he confines the working of his grace to these appointed outward means of grace. So let's have questions if you have some on this slide. Anybody have questions on that before we move on? Right. Yeah, I think... Spiritually dangerous because obviously uh, anything subjective ebbs and flows with your experience, right? And so you can't develop any kind of assurance or certainty or truth based upon feelings. Uh, When I was in my charismatic stage, it was always the next conference. It was always the next event. You always kind of had to outdo yourself to get that experience. So... This idea that God is decent and orderly in the way he applies salvation is wonderful for his people. Um, Now, he is sovereign. As we'll see, it's not as if it's mechanical. We acknowledge his sovereignty to bestow grace as he sees fit. But he has promised, he said, look, these are outward, visible things and ordinary, which we use all the time, and I'm going to bless these as I see fit. 
He may use them to convict you, which is painful, but it's worthwhile. So I think that's where I was getting the dangerous, yeah. Mark? Right. Well, experiences are good, but they're the caboose. They're not the engine. And thankfully, God in his sovereign wisdom used youth camp to save you. Now what are you going to do? You going to spend the rest of your life in youth camp? 55-year-old man going to youth camp? Right. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of like, what was the one, you know, if I was as spelt as Rob Marson, what was that one workout that, that, that Rob did that made him the way he did? Right. <laughs> you have that girlish figure, Rob, and you want to keep it that way, you know? No, I think it's the same thing as you said often, Mark, with meals. Like, which meal did Linda make that really made me healthy? Well, it's all of them, right? So it's this idea, yeah, God in his sovereignty used that experience to bring you from death to life. But there was all kinds of things beforehand, and there will be all kinds of things afterward. And he's told us that these are the ordinary and outward things that I'll use. If If we're to be a people that live by faith... Trusting in the word and promise of God. He gave these things, we take him at his word. Okay, Lord, I trust you. Seems kind of silly to have some guy up front just speaking, but I trust you. I'll do it. Uh, Melissa? That's a perfect segue into the sermon this morning. <laughs> perfect. We'll talk about that. Yeah. Well, to steal thunder, I mean, the bottom line is you, you know the Word of God. And that gives you clear direction for life, and then you apply that in each individual circumstance. Is it lawful? Is it wise? Those are the two most important questions you can ask of any decision. Is it lawful? You have to answer that first. If it's unlawful, don't even go near it. If it's lawful, okay, is it wise? And you think about all the things associated with that decision. Is this person a Christian that I want to marry? If not, that's unlawful. If they are a Christian, is this person, do I think we can get along? Well, not really. It's unwise. You know, those kind of things. So we'll, we'll talk more about that in there. Uh, Ward? How does this interact with uh, the Spirit's work in Absolutely essential. One of the steps we'll talk about is pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit, because without it, you can't know anything of any value. These things are spiritually discerned, right? 1 Corinthians 2. We have to have the Holy Spirit's illumination. You can't understand Scripture without the Holy Spirit. 
Remember when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus and his identity was hidden from them and it was in the breaking of bread. He opened their minds to understand what he was saying to them in the scriptures. So it's absolutely important. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry, was there another one? Oh. At the same time, we can't bind grace completely to the outward means. Rationalists, and these are people that focus everything upon reason, rationalists identify grace with the natural significance of the means. Now, what, what does that mean? For example, God's word works grace through its reasonable moral content. It's just because it's the word. It's just that word which does it. Like the Pharisees, right? They believed that Bible gave them eternal life when Jesus says, no, it's that Bible that points to me. And it's the spirit which uses the Bible to give life. So the rationalists would kind of do away with the supernatural and just say, well, just because it's the word, it's the bestseller. We think it came from God, but it's just that word. So we don't want to say that grace is so tightly bound to the outward means that God is not sovereign in doing as he sees fit. The Romanists, Roman Catholics, say grace flows into the means supernaturally. Thank God there's supernaturalism, but it changes them. They argue that since grace flows through the outward means, they cease to be natural means. For example, the bread and the cup are transformed into something infinitely higher, the very body and blood of Christ. And therefore, what happens is you have Christ, and you have the sacraments, and you have the church in between. Grace is deposited within the church, and they have the outward means to dispense grace as they see fit. We don't want to uh, go to either one of these extremes. We believe the working of God's grace is only where the means of grace are present. God's Spirit accompanies those means, and he enables the renewed soul to be receptive to them, okay? So getting back to the illumination question, the word is proclaimed, and it's only because the Spirit of God is enabling us to receive it that we receive any benefit from it. Remember Lydia? God opened her heart to listen to the things Paul was saying. Spiritual life is begun and continued by the word of God. Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So God uses this. He could have planned to save sinners ordinarily without the use of outward means. He could have done that, but he didn't. And so it's not for us to speculate what God could or couldn't. It's us to know what he does. This is what he promises to do. And therefore, you and I, as Christians, avail ourselves of the means of grace that God himself has appointed. According to the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers, both sung and spoken. They devoted themselves. This is that to which they were applying themselves consistently, week in and week out, because they believed what we're saying, that God will bless these means. Any questions on this slide? Jonathan? Uh, so I hear all the time... <clears throat> Assuming that there's some truth to that, uh, does the confession allow us to uh, accept the validity of some extraordinary 
instances of someone coming to faith where there is no word of God being preached? Not in the case of Muslims, no. Nope. Matter of fact, we'll have a question here from our catechism that says as much. They who have never heard of Christ, don't know the scriptures, cannot be saved. No. God doesn't do that now. I mean, he could if he wanted to, but he's told us he doesn't. So I say no. Um, the, only, the only exceptions we have that our tradition teaches is elect infants and those who are mentally handicapped who couldn't possibly understand the word. And God can save them, and he does. And he'll do so by the regeneration of the Spirit and the work of Christ. They're saved based upon the work of Christ. Now, it's not what the ordinary outward means. But anybody else, no. So if you have these things about dreams and stuff, now God can providentially nudge people to do certain things, but if a Muslim's going to be saved, he's going to be saved by the word of God. That's why the preacher has to go. You know? Yeah. Jonathan? Mm-hmm. Or I think it was also the, the Korean people. There was, there, there's a number of instances in, in uh, Asia or in Africa where they had visions of someone coming and bringing them a book and telling them the way to get well, the way of peace with God. Yeah. But it's <clears throat> dreams work to prepare for the work to be brought. Yeah, you know, the dreams um, in the transition period, we had. God working in amazing ways, and he did use dreams and visions and prophets and prophecies and so forth. But then you come to Hebrews 1, and there is a sense of finality when it says, long ago, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, and in many ways at many times, right? Dreams, visions, all kinds of things. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And there is no way that God is going to dishonor his son by somehow revealing his will in some other way than through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a finality in Hebrews 1 that we have to appreciate. So what happened in the transition period with Cornelius, that's unique. You know, right now we shouldn't expect dreams. And if there are dreams, and God can use dreams providentially, like, hey, I need to go, I got a dream in it. It made me think that I should go to Zimbabwe. And so I go to Zimbabwe. That, that's kind of like a providential nudge, I'll call it, but it's not saving knowledge. It's not new revelation. It's just using something providential as if Chris came up to me and said, hey, why don't you go to Zimbabwe? Okay, I'll go to Zimbabwe. I, I, we want to be careful, again, not to be mystic and to look inward and these things that happen within me for truth. It's always the outward and ordinary means. Let me go back to it. Was it Ward? Have his hand up. I'm sorry? The Muslims have uh, an, an edited uh, New Testament, right? They have what they refer to as the young They call us the people of the book that they did. Good question. I don't know the answer to that. So I, I, think, I think that's true from listening to James White. Yeah. Well, I know they, they esteem Jesus as a great prophet. Even think of him as more, uh, more highly moral than their own prophet, Muhammad. But Muhammad was the last prophet who came to explain more clearly the things that were said by Jesus and others. So, Rob? Um, I, and, uh, a few weeks ago, I think you said we're, we're responsible for 
Yes. In that situation, though, you realize that if he's been talking to his Christian friend and he has the word of God, or at least the truth in his mind, God, you know, it can come to your mind in a dream. But those dreams originate from your own heart, from your own soul, which is why I said we're culpable. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. John? Right. And so I, I, it does seem that what I would say the simple God uses these providential means. He has given us everything we should be seeking out people raising. Yeah, all scriptures breathed out by God. It's competent to equip the man of God for every good work, right? Every good work, not just some. So we have the word of God, as you're saying. If they can't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to. They're not going to believe if somebody rises from the dead, which is true. Jesus rose from the dead. They still didn't believe. So. Okay, why outward? Because they're distinguished from the Spirit's inward work. Inwardly, he enlightens the mind. He renews the will by his sovereign power. It's a supernatural work. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That is a scary statement. Because it puts all of it upon God and none of it upon you or me. But yet, it's a comforting statement, isn't it? It's all on God. It's not on me. You're born again. Once you're born again, that's it. You have spiritual life, and nobody can take that away from you. So unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's the inward work of the Holy Spirit. He regenerates the heart. He sanctifies the soul. And then we use the word ordinary because these are the means that he uses ordinarily in the salvation of sinners. There are special cases, as we discussed, in which God works without means, elect infants and mentally handicapped. He will save them. I'm not saying all of them. I'm saying elect infants, elect mentally handicapped. He will save them. We'll see them in heaven. When they're saved, they're born from above by the Holy Spirit and saved by the work of Christ. You remember how John, uh, John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. So he can do that. It's not ordinary, but he does it. Ordinarily, usually, the outward means are those by which the Holy Spirit applies redemption, which is one of the reasons we come to church every week, because we believe this, right? This is what he does. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they going to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they going to hear without someone preaching? Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, the word of Christ, the gospel of God's grace. Somebody's got to preach. So we ought to use diligently these means whereby Christ communicates the benefits of redemption. They're not the meritorious cause of salvation. You must understand that. Jesus is the meritorious cause of salvation. He accomplished it. They are the instrumental cause of application. 
The Spirit uses these to apply it to you. You've been born again, says Peter, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. Any questions on outward and ordinary? Don? Well, no, God, the triune God does that right. Um, And let's face it, um, the devil himself can disguise himself like an angel of light, and he can do some pretty amazing things. Look at the magicians of Egypt, right? So what I'm saying is that God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what he has told us and what we are to believe and obey is, look, in these last days... I have given you my full revelation. If you see Jesus, you see me. I want you to listen to him. And we see him in the completed canon of Scripture. That's our rock right there. You can't trust anything else. You can't even trust your own eyes. They've done studies, haven't they, with so-called eyewitnesses of events. And different eyewitnesses have different accounts, and they remember things differently. And if it was me, I'd forget everything. So we can trust the Word of God. And Peter, what does he say? Maybe someone else said that a minute ago. You know, we were up on that mountain, and we saw the transfigured Christ. It was incredible. But I have something more sure than that. The living and abiding Word of God. We have that. What a privilege to live in the New Testament era. The New Covenant era. Are they necessary? The inward means are inseparable from salvation. Faith and repentance. Necessary. Absolutely necessary. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Belief. Philippians 1.29, it's a gift. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Necessary. Not meritorious. Necessary. So they're saving graces, and as such, they're fruits and effects of Christ's mediation. They're wrought in the hearts of believers. They're inseparably connected with salvation, faith and repentance. The other graces that flow from or accompany them are described similarly as saving graces, perseverance of the saints, assurance of salvation, so forth. The outward means now, especially the word sacraments and prayer, are all the ordinances of God through which he conveys these graces. We use them in hopes of receiving grace if and when God is pleased to give it. We acknowledge his sovereignty always. The efficacy, the effectiveness of these means depends on his power and his sovereign good pleasure. He is not bound. (laughs) He is free. But he has told us. Now, again, he doesn't lie. Look, if you do this, I will bless. He's free to say that. Remember those invalids at Bethesda? Now, I don't want to get into the debate on whether or not this actually happens, but this is what the scriptures recount, and it's an illustration. The invalids at Bethesda waited by the pool of Bethesda for an angel to stir up the water, and the first one in would be healed. Okay? 
But the principle there is this, that they were waiting on the Lord. And here's that question. They who, having never heard the gospel, know not Jesus Christ and believe not in him, cannot be saved. Be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature, reason, conscience, general revelation, as Jonathan said, or the laws of that religion which they profess. Doesn't matter what it is. If it's not Christianity, it's a different religion. Neither is there salvation in any other but in Christ alone, who is the Savior only of his body, the church. So there you have it. It's absolute, exclusive. You cannot be saved apart from the preaching or the teaching or the reading or the hearing of the word of Christ. Sue? Yes, very good point. Romans 1, he's revealed himself and all the things that he's made, right? So that his eternal power, his deity is clearly perceived, clearly seen and declared. Everyone. And what does that do? It leaves them inexcusable. The problem is not with God's revelation. The problem is with us, our sin. We can't see it. We won't see it. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So people, the scientists that are not Christians, look at his creation, study his work, and say, this is eternal matter, or this all came out of the primordial slime. It's a big bang from an atom that kind of went errant or something like that. I'm not a scientist, but they can't see. They suppress the truth that's all around them in unrighteousness. Every man knows that there's a God deep down. The general revelation without, his own conscience within, tells him there's a God. But he can't be saved by that knowledge. You have to know Jesus Christ. Where do we learn of Jesus Christ? Not in nature, not in conscience. The only place we can meet Jesus Christ is in his word. That's it. Yeah, I, I mean, the Spirit can awaken their conscience to flee, yeah. But they won't be saved apart from the knowledge of Christ. This is so important because when I was teaching high school classes, this was the question that I always came, what about the guy in India or Africa who never heard the gospel? It's not fair. No, it's not. God never said it was going to be fair. He's infinitely wise, he's perfectly just, he's abundantly gracious, he gives the gospel where he sees fit, and he sovereignly regenerates those whom he wants to save. And if he saves you, then give thanks. Right, exactly. God's promise is attached to the outward and ordinary means. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. When you seek him, and the only reason you're going to seek him is if he prompts you to seek him. It's all his grace. And he will honor his own institutions so as to make them necessary. So if he gives us the word, sacraments, and prayer, for example, he will honor them. He will not give them for no reason. We are to pray, wait, and hope for saving grace to accompany them. We are commanded to seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. So by attending the ordinances, going to public worship, for example, and using them diligently, 
you and I, we affirm our trust in God and his method. And you'll notice how modern culture, and even it's infiltrated the church, this way of worshiping and this way of being sanctified is so outmoded in an image-related culture that let's, let's dispense with preaching, let's dispense with some of the praise and the prayers and the reading of Scripture and confessing our... Let's do a conversation. Let's have videos, you know, so that faith comes by seeing. No, that's not what it says. It's, it's the way that God has appointed it. never is outmoded. He said he would apply salvation by these means, so you and I take him at his word and we live by faith. He'll dispense his gracious blessing as he sees fit to his people who wait upon him in this way. Insofar as we persevere in this endeavor and wait upon him for salvation, we honor him. Right? So, again, he sees fit. He's free. He's sovereign. We can't manipulate him in any way, but this is what he's told us. So we take him at his word. That's why we show up. We're to be diligent, not careless, negligent, or indifferent. We attend worship if we do so with no expectation. If you've come this morning and you have no expectation of blessing, you're practically denying his promise, right? Oh, here, I got to go to church. Oh, man. You know, and I don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, there's Sundays I wake up and it's like, I don't want to come. I'm going to be honest with you. Um, the preacher's long, and I just don't want to listen to him, you know. <laughs> but the fact is, that's, not, that's feeling, okay? I am trusting him. I'm going to go because he told me. And I get here, and okay, I'm expecting, Lord, you're going to show up. I'm showing up, and he's going to do something. So we believe him to be true to his pledge. We embrace every opportunity, participate eagerly and expectantly, and he just might hold forth that scepter of mercy to richly bless those who are gathered. He's pleased to work grace through these means. We're made to be religious creatures. We're formed by worship. Very important. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. He's talking about the idolaters here. When they make their idols and they worship their idols, they become like them. Lifeless, worthless, useless. Well, the opposite is true. When we worship the true and living God, we become like him. Lively, animated, trusting, joyful. As is the God who is worshipped, so are the people who worship. They who worship the true God by his appointed means are transformed into his image. Gerhardus Voss, one of my heroes, he calls public worship the workplace of recreating grace. You come into his presence, he's going to recreate you, transform you. The mind draws things to itself, but the will follows the things it chooses, like the wax which is impressed by a seal. Now, what does that mean? We're not determined from our knowledge, but our affections. We can know about evil and not be evil, right? Your knowledge. But if you choose or love evil... You become evil. That's what it means. A man's heart is where his love resides. Or for, as Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So if I get here, I don't feel like coming, but I come here because that's my treasure. And my heart, my affections, my feelings follow. And that's where my heart is. 
right here, and it's being transformed by God's sovereign, redemptive grace. Thomas Manton says, carnal objects make us carnal, earthly objects make us earthly, heavenly things heavenly, and the love of God, godly. The human heart is secretly and indelibly stamped by what we like, esteem, admire, and worship. And so we experience conversion, edification, sanctification by the Spirit who works through means. Any comments, Sue? So, so it's clear to me that so salvation and sanctification really can't be separated. Right. Because they're not step one and step two. We use those terms, we use those terms sort of like, okay, there's a beginning. We acknowledge the beginning, justification, salvation, right? It starts. And then we say from that point, it's just a continual progression of becoming more and more like Christ. So we use those terms to distinguish justification and sanctification. Justification imputes the righteousness of Christ. You're justified. An act, once and for all. It's done. Sanctification is a work where it takes place over time. So we use those terms to distinguish these two things, but they're inseparable. You can't be justified, not sanctified. You can't be sanctified, not justified. Right. Right. Yeah, and I'm not here to question their sincerity. If they tell me they love Christ, I'll take them at their word. But I'll tell them, well, your king summons you, and if you love Christ, your king. You'll obey the summons and come into his presence in public worship and use the means he's appointed and encourage your brethren by your presence. If you want to go out there on the mountaintop and commune with nature, okay, that's your choice, but I'm just telling you, your king says this. And so I think if they love Christ as they claim to love Christ and they hear that and you show them from the word of God, then they should come. And if they don't come and they believe that it's taught in the word of God, that's a practical denial of their faith in Christ. If you, we're responsible for the light we have. So if they don't know about this, I get it. You know, our culture doesn't teach any of this stuff. But once you learn the will of God, and you believe that it's in the Bible, and you do otherwise, that's a practical denial of faith in Christ. Because he's our king. Uh, Bruce? In my own life, where Sue's at, I distinguish between And then through the sanctification process, I realized that he couldn't be my savior unless he was my Lord. Right. And for me, they might have been decades apart. In fact, they were. I right. don't know how many decades, but they were decades apart. Right. Christ was my savior, and some people refer to that as cheap grace. He became my Lord because I realized I couldn't have one without the other. Right. And that's when the obedience and the submission and the real appreciation for the grace of allowing me to be justified in the first place comes. It's what separated me from the Arminian that I used to be to the Calvinist that I am today. I didn't do any part. Right. Yeah, no, that's that's true. No, I think that's true. And for some of us, uh, for some of us, the Savior and Lord 
is simultaneous, and for some of us, it might, the, the consciousness of that is farther apart. But there were certain things, I'm sure, like you prayed, you did go to church, and these are things that he commands us in his word. So you understood some of it, but you're right. It took a long time for the means of grace and God's sovereign mercy to bring you to the point where you'd say, you know what, whatever he says, I'll do it. And that's the aim of sanctification. Make us holy and blameless. Rob? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the mind, <clears throat> you're taking the information you have out here and you're bringing it in, right? You're drawing the information to yourself. You're learning. You're, you're assimilating the information. The will from within chooses and goes out and grabs it. And so the mind can assimilate it in, but the will follows what it chooses. And if you choose Christ, not how you feel, I don't feel like it this morning, I'm choosing Christ, that's where your treasure is, right? Absolutely. The only reason you would ever choose Christ is because he's working in you. That's the only reason. Yep. Um, his ordinances, all his ordinances, like praise, fellowship, meditation, these are ordinances, but especially the word sacraments and prayer, each of which receives its own treatment in the catechism. <clears throat> It's especially those three, the word sacraments and prayer, are channels of grace. They don't possess any power in and of themselves. It's only as the Spirit makes them effectual, okay? So we can't be the rationalist. Hey, if you just have the word, it's all done. No, it's the Holy Spirit. You still got to pray for illumination. You still have to depend upon the Holy Spirit. And on our part, it's the exercise of faith, which is God's gift anyway, and it's necessary for these to be efficacious. So if you're taking the supper without faith, worthless. It's just a snack. Or worse than that, it's judgment. They're all achieving their purpose either in salvation or damnation. Somebody asked a question last week. Maybe it was Rihanna. I can't remember. But if somebody's baptized and they apostatize, they're doubly cursed. They've been privileged to have the stamp of God put upon them. He puts his mark of ownership upon this child. The child grows up, apostatizes, goes off. He's cursed because he's a child of Adam, and he's cursed because he has renounced his obligation to be holy and only the Lord's in baptism. Doubly cursed. You see it there. My word will accomplish all that it's sent to accomplish. We're in aroma from death to death, life to life. So you can see everything. All these ordinances have this double-edged effect. <clears throat> Finally, they ought to be used with diligence, preparation, and prayer. If you prepare your heart, you'll stretch out your hands toward him. So the, we ought to be preparing and expectant when we come to worship. It's an important part. We should give due reverence to these ordinances. Psalm 89, the modern King James Version, God is greatly to be feared in the congregation of the saints and to be adored by all around him. So we revere what he's done, not because of the things themselves, but because God has appointed them. You know, whoever the preacher is, who cares who it is? He's appointed this means as the primary means of salvation. 
He's promised to bless us in public worship. We revere his gracious presence and with staggering familiarity, we can draw near to this infinite God through the wonderful ordinances he's appointed. Staggering. Infinite. We're going to sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. How can sinners draw near and have fellowship with a holy God? Well, through the mediation of Christ and the means that he's appointed. Wow. We come with a healthy and holy filial reverence. Those in places where ordinances are lacking are in a tragic condition. That's all I can say. It's sad. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, then how are they going to call on him when they don't hear about him? That's tragic. Remember the famine of the word that Amos talks about? That's tragic. Those that die in their sins in the midst of ordinances perish with aggravated guilt. Capernaum, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have, been, it would have remained to this day. So we have a great privilege and we have awesome responsibility. I'm not trying to put rocks in your pack. I'm just saying this is huge. This is so important. Any final comments or questions? Jonathan? <laughs> Right. The sacred dialogue begins between God and his people, and he summons. Yeah, it's huge. And isn't it wonderful that he invites us into his presence, John? Oh, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. What are we doing, praying? Yes. Yes. Well, um, John, thankfully, and he's graciously uh, on the uh, missions committee, and he has willingly uh, given himself to be a liaison to teach us about our um, church plants. We're praying for the church plants in adult Sunday school. Actually, maybe the best thing to do this, this week is just to give an update uh, the, the Resurrection Presbyterian uh, with Jason Pateo. I'm assuming you, you have... Yes, yes. Case. Maybe you can... Resurrection Church in Strongsville, uh, Reverend Jason Pitio has taken a call in Charlotte. So it looks as if the, our sister church in Strongsville is going to close its doors. I can't imagine. I think they had, what, eight or nine people meeting in his home. So I can't imagine they're going to continue. But we're sad to hear that. Glad that he has a call. But it's been a tough road for him. So we'll pray for him and Story Church as we close. Thank you, John. And thank you for being willing to do this. And I apologize for not giving you time. I, I lose track of everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the outward and the ordinary means. We thank you for being willing to make this promise and to work decently and in order in a way that we can understand and count on. We think of Resurrection Church. We're sad to see it close its doors. We pray for Jason and his family that you'll be with them, provide for them. And we thank you for Story Church. For Jeremy King and his wife and family and all those who are there, we pray for your blessing upon them. Please prepare us for worship now, we ask. Let us come with expectancy, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.